Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Chitheads podcast. My guest today is Srina Gandhi. Srina is a part of the Religious Studies Department at Michigan State University, where she primarily teaches classes on religion and race in the Americas. She is currently finishing up edits on a manuscript, A Cultural History of Yoga in the United States, which looks at the impacts of race, gender, and class on how yoga is practiced and commodified in religious and secular spaces. She has also collaborated with four other scholars of South Asian descent on an article titled Feminist Critical Hindu Studies in Formation. Dr. Gandhi has presented her work nationally and internationally and is committed to intersectional scholarship and meticulous research grounded in facts. So with that, hello, Srina. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Thank you for having me. So it's been a real pleasure um, exploring your work in preparation for this interview. And so as we always do at the beginning of this podcast, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about the story of your work and and what sort of inspired and and led you down the path to the work that you do today. I'm I'm an immigrant from England and my family is from Uganda. And uh, when I was growing up in, in New York, my grandfather would come every summer and him and my grandmother uh, taught Vipassana meditation uh, and worked with SN Goenka on, um, you know, they would just travel all over the world and, and run these courses. Mm. And so, of course, whenever they'd come for the summer, they would make me meditate, make me do yoga, which was not necessarily fun for like an eight to 12 year old, <laughs> you know. <laughs> And my grandfather and I would take walks uh, every morning and we would just talk about religion and meditation. And I think he had gone on, on various spiritual paths. He, you know, was a follower of Sai Baba. He read, you know, just about every guru that was popular during the 20th century he gifted me all his books, so I, I have them from Vivekananda to you know Yogananda, uh, Chinmaya. You know he just read everything, and so we would discuss that. And he was always kind of searching. I think he landed on Buddhism because because of the caste issue. You know, my grandmother yeah. and grandfather had a mixed caste marriage. That, that's where they landed and, and spent their life uh, in retirement doing. And so, we, you know, growing up, I had a lot of great memories of these conversations with him. And, you know, when it came time for me to go to college, I thought I would go into history, but I just found the religious studies classes more compelling. And I think he had a lot to do with that, you know, mm. and kind of just felt like I was snowballing you know, I got my BA in religious studies. I got a scholarship to get my master's at Harvard. So I, I took that and ran with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and then I got my PhD at the University of Florida. And it, when it came time to deciding on a dissertation, I was a little bit stuck, to be quite honest. Uh, I thought I would do some field work, but I'm kind of awkward and not really good at talking to people <laughs> or going up and saying, can you can have a conversation about this? As I was struggling... I was getting ready for my exams and I um, was driving back to Florida for the academic year and I stopped in a motel and I watched, I, you know, turned on the TV and it was a VH1. They used to have this show called The Fabulous Life Of. 
you know, the fabulous life of Britney Spears or JLo, and you would see all the fabulous things that they owned and do and da 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 da. Well, the episode I just like landed on was the fabulous life of religion. Mm. And so it went through like the fabulousness of the Pope, you know, um, various churches, and then they brought up yoga. They described yoga as being an ancient Buddhist practice invented by the Buddha. (laughs) And and then they interviewed this this woman, white woman, uh, very young, and she was the founder of Yoga Booty Ballet. No. Yes. And so she was their expert on yoga. And I just was staring at the TV being like, there is a story here. Right. Yep. There's a there's something really interesting going on here. I don't know what it is, but here we go. And then, you know, I wrote my dissertation years ago, like over 10 years ago now, and I kind of struggled with publishing it. Then I really started delving into critical race theory, uh, partly through my work at the ARCA Center for Social Justice Leadership under the mentoring, under the tutelage of, of this woman by the name of Dr. Lisa Brock. And I just started thinking about that in terms of the history that I had researched. And I I thought, okay, this history is enriched if I look at it through a critical race theory lens, Um, especially looking at whiteness, white supremacy, and and cultural appropriation. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's kind of snowballed from there, (laughs) even to be even bigger, I guess. Yeah. Well, you reflecting on, on, you know, feeling like you're not good at having conversations with people, you're doing great. (laughs) Although I can, um, I can empathize when I was in grad school and had to do, um, when I had to do oral exams, I was just a total bomb when it came to that, like having to being put on the spot to defend positions was like particularly intimidating to me. Um, but thank you for sharing that beautiful story um, and and kind of especially t- sharing a little bit about that documentary, I guess you could say it is, um, and really <laughs> seeing it, yeah, <laughs> such as it is. And then in really seeing in that, um, yeah, the failure of a kind of proper contextual historical understanding, and then also being interested enough to like wanting to explain how we got to the point where a yoga booty ballet, you know, representative is considered the representative for, um, you know, yoga that has then been, you know, misdescribed as a originally a Buddhist practice. Um, so, you know, your work ha- really kind of, um, at least on the popular level, exploded when you wrote this um, now quite famous article that was quite celebrated by a lot of people, but then also quite hit a nerve with some others. And so I wanted to just ask you to talk a little bit about that article. Um, uh, You know, now it's been several years, of course, and and what happened there and why you think it hit uh, such a nerve for some people. Right. So um, I was approached by a dear friend, Lily Wolf, who said, you know, you want to write something on this because we've been talking about cultural appropriation, yoga, so I said, sure, you know, why not? And it was just a thousand words for a little known, you know, blog uh, yeah. for a social justice center. <laughs> and uh, so we wrote it, published it, I think sometime in the fall of 2017. And uh, nobody really read it. And uh, Lily was upset about that, I remember. But I remember thinking, you know, academics, we just kind of don't get a lot of 
you know, attention. And if we do, uh, it's, uh, it's for like bigger academics, more, you know, established and uh, public facing. And, and then it kind of exploded in February of 2018. I got an email from uh, the College Fix. And then from there, I got an email from Fox News. Mm-hmm. And Tucker then- Carlson talked about you, didn't he? Tucker Carlson did an entire segment on just me. He he had asked me to be on the show. I I because Michigan State was very supportive. I had help from their communications team, and they just advised that I go on radio silence. And that was really good advice. They said that this would die down because at the same time, Richard Spencer, that white supremacist. Mm-hmm. was to come onto campus. And so basically what the Michigan State Communications Department wanted to do was protect me from him making this an even bigger thing. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, it did get scary. I was featured on a neo-Nazi website where they said, you know, we want to go to Michigan State and picket her. And there were some threats that were physical in nature, rape threats, you know, um, assault threats. uh, And, um, you know, one person threatened to report me to ICE, (laughs) even though I'm a U.S. citizen. A lot of people told me to go back to India. And like my my instinct was to be like, well, I'm not from India. You know, I was born in London, but I did not engage with anyone. And it, it eventually did die down. But it was it was traumatic. It was really yeah. difficult. At the time, I was living with my brother and my father. And my brother was, gosh, he must have been 12 years old. And, you know, my dad is uh, was in his 60s. It's not an easy thing having to tell your dad that you're receiving all these kind of horrific threats of and that they know your home address, right? Because those are all, that's mm. kind of public through voter rolls and everything. And uh, I mean, parents were super supportive, but they were very, very worried. Every, everyone was worried, you know? So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I just kind of tried to surf my way out of that and uh, I've landed on the other side. But some of the reactions, I mean, I got like a lot of right wing reactions about this. Yeah. I also got people who you would consider kind of progressive white folks emailing me. I had one woman in particular who said, you know, she practices green yoga in Chicago, but that she would never send her child to Michigan State now because of me, because, you know, I made yoga into this terrible thing. And or people would email me and say, um, you say yoga is, is white supremacy. And I don't think that's what the blog post said at all, you know, but yeah. you had these sensational headlines uh, that would say that. I think what Lily and I were trying to say is that, you know, yoga has become popular because of these, because of white supremacy culture. And so pay attention to that. You know, Um, I think we even said in the article, don't stop practicing yoga. And I've given several talks at this point. And I always emphasize that because if it is helpful to you, if it helps make you healthier, and more at peace in this crazy world, do it, right? Use the tools that you have because this world is not easy to navigate. Um, And it's just 
becoming, it's just become harder in the last year. And I have a feeling it's going to become harder as we move forward. So if yoga is helping you, it's helping you become more flexible, more aware, more at peace, um, healthier in various ways, you know, use it. I think what Lily and I were just trying to say, and what I, I feel is not outrageous is to just, you know, acknowledge that the roots of this practice are, are in South Asia, right? Yeah. And that the history is much longer than the formation of a corporation called Yoga Booty Ballet, right? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I guess that that's, I, I, and what's really striking me now is you've got all these people that are making billions of dollars um, off of this practice. And then at the same time, right now, you have um, India in just such peril, you yeah. know. So what I have been saying to people is, are you thinking about that? Are you thinking yeah. about how you are profiting and creating a livelihood of this practice? You've had the opportunity to because of your social location, because of colonialism, right, because of capitalism that have all benefited particular parts of the world. And what are you doing to honor that opportunity, right? Yeah. To give back, to make it so that this opportunity is equalized, right? Because exactly. not everyone gets the opportunity to make millions of dollars off of yoga. And I guarantee you that the majority of people in India don't have that opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That reminds me of the... Um, conversation I had a couple of weeks ago with Richard Katz, where he was talking very much in a similar vein that, you know, uh, appropriation isn't just about practicing another practice, it's about practicing another practice, practicing a practice from another tradition and then not giving back mm -hmm. and not being cognizant of that kind of energetic exchange, you know, which of course in a capitalist society is, is, is often based on, on financial resources. Yes. And the thing about uh, cultural appropriation as opposed to like cultural exchange is that there's no accountability, right, for one side. And uh, I think accountability, it, accountability and transparency are our pathways to, ju to achieving justice. Mm. Right? So, yeah. So what, you know, so from what I understand you saying, so you think um, from your perspective, was the primary misunderstanding of your argument the idea that it that it was seen to suggest that people who practice yoga are in inherently white supremacists and that they should stop is that essentially what the misunderstanding was i think that was the misunderstanding and i think in general in the united states um, perhaps even globally we have a very kind of shallow understanding um, of what white supremacy is I yeah. think when someone says white supremacy, they think, oh, white supremacists. And yeah. uh, as a scholar of, of critical race uh, studies, uh, an Americanist, um, what I would say is white supremacy is a lot more than just, you know, attached to a group identity. Right? It yeah. is a system. It's a structure that is upheld by various practices, traditions, economic systems, particularly capitalism, uh, colonialism, you know, our ideas of uh, what the other is, and all of these systems kind of work together to uphold this false idea 
that white people are superior to all others, right? So what I would say is that the majority of people don't necessarily believe this idea of white superiority, but we all, right, from you to me and everyone in between, we all participate in a system that was built on upholding that idea, yeah. right? We all participate in capitalism, right? We all, you know, if you're in the United States in some way, unless you're Native American, we have all benefited from settler colonialism, right? Mm -hmm. We've all benefited, unless you're African American and you have ancestry in the enslaved South, we've all benefited from enslavement. And without the kind of, without enslavement, you wouldn't have capitalism and without land seizure, you know, we we wouldn't have the United States as it is today, right? The Mm -hmm. amount of wealth that was generated from that benefits us, right? So even as a brown woman, I benefit and am complicit in some ways in in white supremacy culture, right? That doesn't necessarily make me a white supremacist, but it does, you know, again, talking about accountability, it does uh, implore me to be accountable to how my life can negatively sometimes impact the lives of others. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I think we have a a misunderstanding. The other thing is, I think in general, because of capitalism, we're not told no. Like if we want something, we just have to go on the internet, click buy, and it comes to us, you know, sometimes in quickly in two days, right? And capitalism is all built on giving you anything you want if you have the right amount of money. If, if someone says no to you, no, you can't have this because it belongs to our culture, or you can have this, but there are strings attached, I think people freak out a little bit because we're so individualistic and everything's kind of centered on me. And, and that has a lot to do with white supremacy culture as well. And so threatening that, saying no, uh, I think created a little bit of a freak out, even though we didn't really say no, just the idea of a brown woman telling white women, no, I think freaked people out. Yeah. I'm really glad glad you brought up the point about the difference between uh, white supremacy as a sort of, um, you know, multivalent uh, system that has a variety of factors, you know, integrating to create and sustain it versus white supremacists, because it seems like, and tell me if you agree with this, that, um, you know, in addition to the individualism that you're saying, perpetuating this idea that everything belongs to me and nothing should stand in my way of acquiring whatever it is that I want, right? The kind of consumerist um, illusion. Mm-hmm. But then it also, in politics, it seems to reinforce the idea that the problem is at the individual level and that really it's just about like, you know, witch hunting the white supremacists. And like, and if we just like, if we just kind of find and root out the bad individuals that that will solve the problem. Do you, do you, do you agree with that? That this is sort of, it seems to me like oftentimes in progressive so-called progressive conversations um, or in the most um, perhaps noisy expressions of progressive politics, that's the focus is sort of like, you know, finding the bad people and, and shaming them in, in, into a kind of submission to the right discourse rather than addressing the, the political structures that actually perpetuate those discourses. I 100% agree. It's so much easier to point out bad actors and blame problems on them 
rather than doing a deep dive into our power, right? Into uh, what it is that um, enables us to live the way we do. And I think one of the scariest things about studying white supremacy is realizing one, how much power you have, and two, that in order to solve this, you have to give up some power. And I think um, the majority of people have a hard time addressing that because it's, it's uncomfortable, it's difficult. And we've been taught that racism is something that are individual actions, right? And that our intentions matter more than our actions. And what I tell my students is we have to look at the structures. We cannot look at individual feelings. So I'm really going to ask you as hard as it is not to focus on your intentions, right? Let's look at the actions that we take, the structures, the policies, right? And um, decenter ourselves. But I think you're you're 100% correct. That's great analysis. So in terms of, um, you know, white supremacy, as we're defining it, you mention in, um, I believe it was your ta- a, a talk that I was watching um, uh, uh, a little while ago now when I was preparing for the interview, um, you, you unpack kind of three aspects of, it, and I'm wondering if you can just briefly um, perhaps um, uh, define those for us in relation to how they connect with white supremacy. And one is capitalism, one is colonialism, and then the other is war. Yes. And and this comes from um, a critical race theory scholar, Andrea Smith, who's had to live through her own controversies over her heritage. Um, But I find her article really useful for undergraduates and uh, because it's short and it's pretty digestible. But basically she says that Uh, There are three pillars that uphold capitalism, or sorry, uphold white supremacy. And it's capitalism, um, which comes out of the practice of enslavement, right? And and in order to justify enslavement, you had to create anti-Black racism, right? That Mm -hmm. these people are less than us, so we have the right to enslave them. And all of that money that we got off of that free labor was the kind of, you know, the gasoline, if you will, for the engine of capitalism, right? Then you have uh, colonialism, and that is rooted in kind of uh, anti-Indigenous racism. And in order to justify seizing the land, you know, you had to um, basically say and convince your, we had to convince ourselves that our use of the land was better than their use of the land, right? And uh, that was basically, you know, the foundation of U.S. policy of, uh, you know, uh, tribal removal and then eventually the reservation policy, right? Mm -hmm. And if you look at our policy uh, in the 19th and first part of the 20th century, or actually most of the 20th century regarding Native Americans, it was a policy of, of genocide. And I think there was the assumption that they would eventually not exist anymore uh, Mm. because of that policy. And so, so yes, so colonialism is connected to genocide, is connected to anti-Indigenous racism. And then finally, you have the pillar of war. And um, again, in order to justify going to war, going into a place and saying, you know what, Um, we can teach you how to live better, 
right? That's been the 20th century policy towards much of Asia, much of um, South America, right? And our, um, you know, interference in, in their elections and the way that they uh, have, you know, created their governments and all under the guise of, you know, democracy, right? But then out of that, um, you have uh, the emergence of Orientalism, this idea that there is a fundamental difference between the West and the East, that there is a West and an East, right? I think, especially when you're looking at yoga, Orientalism is so uh, important to understand because we have this kind of romantic, exotic, uh, spiritual understanding of South Asia and thus yoga um, and, uh, which is, you know, I mean, anyone that's been to India know that it's not just all spiritual, right. Yeah. And not all, not everyone's meditating all the time. And, but if you look at Americans like Henry David Thoreau, that's kind of what he thought about India. And that has a, a legacy, right. Uh, kind of been passed down, uh, through the ages. And on top of that, the Indian tourist authority, definitely plays on that and has like incredible spiritual India adverts come to India where you can like, you know, be at peace. And then you get to India and you land in uh, Bombay or Delhi and you're like, Oh gosh, (laughs) you know, that. So, yeah. And that kind of West versus East. I mean, that always, um, it becomes, uh, it's especially clear to me, you know, I studied um, Western philosophy in grad school and, and even just the idea, you know, of philosophy is so, you know, it's so westernized and the mm-hmm. Western, the notion of a Western philosophical tradition has become so concretized around a particular canon, you know, of yes. white dudes. Yes. And that then the the very notion of philosophy, which of course, yes, it, you know, it derives from a quote unquote Western context, but like the idea that like, only philosophy existed in this tradition and it's Mm -hmm. not found elsewhere. And what they're doing is something like religion or spirituality is this, you know, is still perpetuated in, in most philosophy department, most academic philosophy departments and very few, you know, have, have really incorporated um, the vast tome of Indian philosophical texts, many of which are not interested in, you know, are not talking about spirituality at all. You know, they are, they amount to, um, you know, just as rigorous kind of explorations of epistemology and 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 ontology and thing and and things that you know, if you know, Western philosophers would open up their minds a little bit, they would realize. And it, you know, it's yeah. happening to some degree. Um, and so, I guess you know that kind of leads us to the last sort of um, piece of our conversation, which is sort of where you are now. Um, which you know, we were talking about your article, which focused more and kind of yoga practitioners, popular yoga practitioners, but your recent work, the article Feminist Critical Hindu Studies and Formation is really written for scholars, it seems, and mm-hmm. you can, you know, refine um, that uh, summary, you know, if I'm if I'm not quite explaining it correctly, but it seems like you're really trying to, you and the, the, the other uh, feminists who you worked with um, are trying to kind of forge... Um, an approach to Hindu studies that would incorporate some of this um, consideration of the role of, of white supremacy and white supremacist history in the formation of these academic 
specialties and, and categories in the first place. So can you kind of, um, you know, lay out the problem for us and, and, and then we can walk, you know, we can make our way towards what you think the solution is? Right. Um, so first, let me just mention my fellow feminists or what we, we call ourselves the intellectuals. So I'll mention them. That's uh, Harshita uh, uh, Kamath Manruthi, um, Sailaja Krishnamurthy, Shanna Sippy, and um, Tanisha Ramachandran. And uh, we're all in various parts of the United States and Canada. And um, going through this process with them has just empowered me in so many ways. You know, I, um, I just love and adore them. Um, we came together around our dissatisfaction with a panel that was at the American Academy of Religion one year where the, the purpose of the panel was to talk about Hinduism and race in the United States. And everyone on that panel was, I believe, a white man. And um, a white woman was supposed to do the uh, response to the panelists, but she didn't make it at the last minute. Uh, she couldn't. Uh, so uh, we kind of organized around that. We, we had a panel then the next year just talking about how we need to think more deeply about how white supremacy uh plays or played a role in the creation of not only just the study of religion, but the study of Hinduism. And the other thing that we ended up realizing as we were having more conversations among ourselves and, and with other people was that this field is very dominated by Brahmins. The way in which we understand what Hinduism is, is very much through a Brahmin lens. Uh, and uh, just like you know, uh, we need to kind of contend with, with white supremacy in the study of religion. We also need to contend with the issue of caste uh, or Brahmanical patriarchy in the study of uh, South Asian religions, in particular Hinduism. And that was what our, uh, what our article was in a nutshell about. And I really interesting how you brought up the point of, you know, philosophy, right, as being kind of westernized in Europe and, and um, you know, kind of unrooting that from the study of religion is so incredibly important because we'll have um, entire sections just dedicated to European philosophers, but, you know, nothing dedicated to, let's say, you know, um, uh, indigenous philosophers or, or black philosophy or, you know, the study of philosophy is very much rooted in uh, all these guys were contending with with religion. Right. Uh, so this idea that it's separate is is very much uh, kind of I think comes out of this comes out of Orientalism. Right. This idea that that's spiritual East and, and we're the kind of pragmatic West as we were kind of teasing out the ways in which white supremacy impacts everything from what is studied, to who is giving preference in terms of studying, to who is studying it, right? Who's getting the scholarships, who's getting the jobs, et cetera. Um, we also had to contend with the fact that the five of us were all Saverna women, you know, um, even though my grandparents were mixed caste and my parents were mixed caste and 
you know, we experienced, my sister and I experienced snide comments and stuff from other people. It was nothing compared to what it means to be Dalit, right? Um, because I still have the last name Gandhi. And so I'm, you know, very much uh, privileged with that kind of, and I should say Savarna means uh, with caste, right? And um, so I, I, I benefit from that. And the women that I was talking to, we all benefit from that in some way. Some are Brahmin, some are not, but uh, none of us know the pain of what it means to be discriminated against as a Dalit. And uh, we did some more reading and realized that we have a problem on two fronts, right? And um, as I'm revising my manuscripts too, I'm, you know, I'm trying to bring that in because, you know, as much as South Asians, you know, are upset about the cultural appropriation of yoga, are we upset about the ways in which we treat Dalit people, not just in South Asia, but here in the United States, this wonderful nonprofit um, called Equality Labs, which is run by this woman, uh, Thenmuri Sandarajan. And um, she is amazing. If you can look her up and see her work, do it. Uh, she uh, spearheaded with uh, some other colleagues a, um, a kind of survey of, you know, caste discrimination in the United States. And they found that Dalit people who live here or immigrants here who have become Americans experience a lot of caste discrimination from uh, Savarna people, from other South Asians. And so just like we bring over our dance traditions and our food traditions, you know, our gender norms, we also bring over our, our, caste, our ideas of caste. It just doesn't stop at the border, right? So if we really belong or believe in equality and we really believe in uh, justice, then we have to examine ourselves as well. And um, a lot of, just like you have a lot of white fragility around examining white supremacy, you have a lot of, you know, uh, Hindu fragility around examining caste, right? And uh, caste supremacy. So yeah, that this whole journey has been really revelatory for me in, in terms of you know, we can always do more, right? We can always examine our privilege in different ways and in more ways. And we are, you know, our accountability is not just limited to, you know, one space. Yeah. And we don't have to take it so personally. We can engage that process without, mm -hmm. you know, seeing it as a disruption to our very sense of of ourselves or you know insofar as we have over identified ourselves with with certain things perhaps it is you know good for us and positive for us to be disoriented but i think that there's this there's this taking of things too personally back to our question mm -hmm. you know the observation about the individualizing focus rather than the institutional systematic focus and yeah. if people could just recognize that you know reflecting on one's privilege is not about like saying you're a bad person, you know? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that's hard for people to kind of really, uh, you know, tease out. Um, yeah. So 
so this has been lovely. I wanted to ask now about, you know, you're working on this manuscript. And of course, I imagine all the things that we've been discussing are, are, are included in that um, exploration. But is there anything else in terms of that project that you want to share with the listeners about kind of, you know, directions of inquiry that you're taking uh, that would be useful for the listeners to reflect on? A lot of it is in terms of the content revision of my dissertation, which anyone can gain access to. But what I'm doing to revise it is I'm adding a chapter on um, white supremacy and how it's important to understand it in order to not only understand yoga, but to understand um, religion in the U.S. and to understand how the study of religion came to be. So it has multiple uses. It's not just, you know, for one thing. And I think that if you add that to you know, the many lenses through which you study religion or understand the United States, it just enriches your understanding. And that our focus on white supremacy as a critical race theorist, at least for me, is not because I want to say that the United States is a terrible, terrible place. It's because part of me does believe in the project of the United States, that we have the opportunity to be better. So why don't we, right? We have the opportunity to, um, to repair, you know? And so I know there are a lot of people that uh, agree, like feel like the project of the United States is inherently flawed. And in many ways, I think it is, but I also think that we can use that as an opportunity to rectify past wrongs, to change, to just be better. But I think, again, we're going through this moment where I I don't think anyone ever knew what critical race studies was. And all of a sudden it's, you know, become this buzzword in like the last year. And now you have bills being passed saying you can't teach this. And I'm just like, where did this come from? (laughs) You know? There's bills being passed that you can't teach it? Where? Like in- Um, I want to say- I want to say Idaho. Don't quote me on this, but there's there's a few in like various state houses. They're trying to ban the study of critical race studies. Wow. Yes. That's pretty intense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate you mentioning this, um, your kind of affirmative vision of the project of the United States, because I actually think that, uh, um, and maybe you have some thoughts on this, that in the the wider kind of political battle within the United States, there's, I think on the right, there's a misunderstanding that, you know, people on the left progressives hate the United States. And they're obviously very patriotic. Obviously, their patriotism is rooted in white supremacy in various ways, as it's been, you know, we've clearly seen over and over again. Um, But it's, you know, the, the critiques of the United States, you know, I think for many progressives are, like you say, it's because it's it's um it's an idealistic vision of possibility that's that yeah. really undergirds that it's not about tearing and destroying things it's about building something more beautiful and better like you were saying yes and i i have you know my inspiration from someone who was uh very much um a problematic figure thomas jefferson but he did say to dissent is to be patriotic right and yeah. um so I remember reading that when I was was younger, much, 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 much younger, and thinking, I really kind of like that because, you know, if you can't be critical of yourself and 
see your flaws, then, you know, you're kind of living in la-la land. And I, I do mm-hmm. think that a lot of Americans right now are kind of in, in la-la land. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a whole other conversation. The, the kind of delusional um, conspiratorial mindsets that people have be, have succumbed to. It's quite upsetting and frightening in various ways. Um, that's an interesting note to end on, but we will, <laughs> we'll leave that conversation for next time. Um, Sharina, it's been such a delight talking with you. Sharina, uh, once again, is, um, uh, a, um, a part of the religious studies department at Michigan state, Um, She has also recently completed an article with a number of other uh, feminist thinkers, feminist critical Hindu studies in formation. Um, I believe it's possible to find that article online. Is that is that true, Srina? Yes, you can find it through um, uh, Religion Compass. Religion Compass. And I think I don't know who the publisher is, but it's pretty easy to find. Okay. All right. Feminist Critical Hindu Studies Information. And then the title of your forthcoming manuscript is A Cultural History of Yoga in the United States. It's either going to be that or um, something, you know, we're kind of playing with the title right now, but yoga and cultural appropriation or yoga and whiteness, you know, so we'll we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. <laughs> Do you have a um, a general date for when that will be published? I'm hoping sometime next year. Let's keep our fingers crossed. All right. So yeah. So right now we're we're in uh, May of 2021. So depending on when you're listening to this, um, uh, look for that uh, book coming out um, in a bookstore near you. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Srita. How can uh, folks find you in uh, if they want to get in touch? Is do you have a website that people could reach out to? I do not have a website yet. I'm I'm working on that, but um, I'm on Twitter at Srina Nikita. Um, you can Google me and you can find my page at the MSU website and uh, you can contact me there. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Um, I have been speaking with Srina Gandhi. Srina, thanks so much for chatting with me today. Thank you. <laughs>